Hello and welcome to the weekly message podcast from Crozet United Methodist Church in Crozet, Virginia. We invite you to join us in person any Sunday for our contemporary service at 9.30 a.m. or for a more traditional service at 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org for further information. We hope you enjoy this week's message from Crozet UMC. So we have been on this exploration of some of the most beautiful and inspiring relationships in the Bible. And today we come to one that most of us are aware of. I mean, even if you only came to church on Christmas, you would be aware of this relationship, the one between Mary and her son, Jesus. And their relationship has a very strong beginning. But it's really only here in the Gospel account of John that we see a strong ending to it. Only the Gospel account of John takes the time to give us what are only a couple of verses, but that speak volumes. And so we're going to have a moment to kind of explore this together and to really dive deep into what these verses reveal. Again, there are only two verses, so you could easily gloss over them and move on. And frankly, there are a lot of Christians that although they love Jesus Christ, it's very difficult to be very present for a long time and abide in the passion and the crucifixion. It's disturbing to our spirits. It is so absolutely depressing to read these accounts and yet all four of the gospel accounts record them for us and there are nuances as we had just discussed with you but they are important enough that they are told time and time again so what about this little interlude here what we find is that jesus is doing something radically new here Generally, a firstborn son, as Jesus was, Mary's firstborn, had duties that were ascribed to them. In those days, women and the men that they marry had a a rather large age difference. And so it was the norm for a wife to outlive her husband, which meant that suddenly the patriarch, the provider, the one in whom all the property and the material wealth was in their name was gone. And then this would create a dire circumstance for the widow unless she had an elder son who was of age to inherit and then continue to provide for the family. And so when Joseph passed away, this is what Mary had in Jesus. Now, it was a rather unusual firstborn son, and yet he was able to bring her along with his ministry and was able to ensure that she was kept safe and in close proximity. But now everything was about to change. Jesus was on the cross, and he was going to die. And because of this, all of a sudden, Mary could be in peril. She could no longer rely on having a male to protect her and to keep her safe and secure, to provide for her needs, and to also ensure that she would not suffer and die. Instead, this was a moment of great tribulation, and yet Mary was very much present in this time. She did not hide. She did not flee. She decided to stay with him to the end. 
And there she was, and there's, they're kind of represented with our figures on our altar today. We have Jesus and cruciform figure, and then we have Mary over here. And you'll notice there's a little bit of difference because in actuality, while we love to depict them really close together, you couldn't get that close to the bottom of the cross and the other crosses that were there that day. There would have been a perimeter that would have been guarded by the Roman guards there. And so they would not have allowed you to come too close because there was a methodology there. And so she would have been... a close enough that she could see him and obviously that he could see her, but they would have been at a height differential and then there would have been a bit of a difference there. So instead of being able to whisper to her directly below him, when he utters his words, he would have had to project them to her. This alone is remarkable because in order to do that, you have to counteract the methodology of death by crucifixion. Crucifixion actually causes death by suffocation. Your body becomes so heavy that your your torso leans over your lungs. You cannot expand them and draw air, and so eventually you suffocate. And here he was drawing his final breaths, and he looks down and he sees his mother, and he sees one of his apostles. And he is so inspired and moved to use his last breath to do something that most of us would never think to do if we were actively dying. And that is to forge a new connection, to establish a new relationship, knowing that his relationship with his mother was about to be unraveled because of death. And so he looks down and he chooses to overcome all of the pain and the difficulty of trying to breathe. And he rises up in order to project his words to her and the beloved disciple, declaring, and perhaps this is why these words are so brief and to the point, This is your mother, and this is your son. As of right now, this is a brand new relationship. And it was necessary because even though Jesus was the eldest, he did have younger brothers, also known as James and Jude. However, they themselves were going to be entering into leadership into the new church. And they were going to have their own struggles and eventually their own wrestling with martyrdom. And so Jesus wanted to ensure that someone would be very present with her. And you'll notice that he entrusts her into the care of a disciple, an apostle, so that she would not all of a sudden be sequestered and sent away. She wouldn't have been on the front line for the death and the resurrection and then suddenly sent to retire off in the countryside. No, he ensured that if she wanted to be a part of this new church that was beginning, a part of the opening and the expression of the grace of God in Christianity, that she could be right there. How thoughtful of our Lord and Savior. And truly, would we expect nothing less? And so we have the opportunity here to look at the scripture, and perhaps this is an exercise you've heard other clergy do. You know, who are you in the text? And so oftentimes it's, you know, are, are you the Mary position? Are you the beloved disciple? Sometimes people like to claim they're the Jesus. That's always a psychological endeavor, right? Oh, you're the Jesus in this story. Okay. But I would argue with you that we are none of the people in this story. Because what we're seeing here is something that is truly groundbreaking. Mary was there from the beginning. She nurtured the infant Christ in her womb. 
She brought him forth into the world. She was there from the moment that it was announced that he would come. She had raised him all of his days from a baby to a toddler to a child to a teenager and into the young adult that offered himself for us. She had been there from the very beginning of his ministry. For the Gospel account of John records for us that the first miracle happened at a wedding in Cana of Galilee. And the instigator for the entire miracle was, in fact, Jesus' mother, Mary. They had gone to a wedding, and most of us who have gone to a wedding are familiar with it. There's actually the religious ceremony, and then there's the celebration afterwards. And as was the habit in their day, when the wine ran out, so did the merriment. The party was over, and everybody went home. Now, Mary approaches Jesus and says to him, the wine is out. And of course, Jesus responds, woman, what do you want from me? My, my hour has not yet come. What is it that you want me to do? And so Mary, in supreme confidence, as some parents have in their children, says to the servants, whatever he tells you to do, just do it. Listen to him. And Jesus can tell that she's not going to let this one slide. She's not going to forget about it. She is clearly getting others invested. So now, can you picture? She's talked to Jesus kind of quietly. And then all of a sudden, she's gathered the servants. And she's like, okay, you just listen to him. So now they're standing here like, what, what does he want us to do? And so Jesus looks over and sees some rather large jars. Jar is not the appropriate word for our context. They are more like giant vats. They would have been bigger than our baptismal font over there. And these were used for purification because everyone coming to this wedding, which would have included a massive amount of people, generally you opened it up to your hometown, you had your families, everybody was coming. And so they would have had these there in order to wash hands and feet and perhaps faces since they would be eating together. And back then, your feet and your hands and your face got very dirty traveling upon dirt roads. And so they would have offered that as a means for them to maintain their cleanliness as they were entering into the celebratory time of the wedding. And in doing this, Jesus looks over at the seven and says, go ahead and fill them to the top. So during that time, you know, as people came into the, to the reception, they would have lessened, and now he wanted them to fill them back up to the brim, all seven. And then Jesus does nothing. He doesn't go over and blesses them. He doesn't go over and wave his hands or make any kind of verbal invocation. He simply says, fill it up to the top, and now take some over to the wine steward. The wine steward is the biblical sommelier. This is the expert in wine. And the servants do this, knowing that a moment ago it was in a giant jar, and now it's coming over here as wine. Can you imagine how they waited to see what would happen when the wine steward drank it? The wine steward drinks it and is so impressed, he calls over the groom. And he says, you know... Most people serve the best wine first and then serve, you know, the cheaper stuff after everybody's gotten drunk. But you did not do this. This wine is excellent. You have saved the best for last, which testifies to us that not only did Jesus perform this, his first miracle at a wedding in Cana of Galilee, but he made excellent wine, wine that was so good that the sommelier was impressed. And... Here's a part that we don't usually tell our children in Sunday school. With those seven, those seven vats that were made, it's estimated that Jesus made somewhere around 150 gallons of wine. That's a big party. 
That's a huge celebration. He didn't just make a case. He didn't just make, you know, a few bottles extra. He allowed, I mean, they could have celebrated for days on 150 gallons of wine. And he did this because it was important to his mother. Now, this wedding was not in Nazareth where they were from. It was in Cana. And so they had to travel there. And it said in the text that Mary had been invited and so Jesus had been invited. And then, of course, the 12 disciples are there, which leads us to believe that they were kind of crashing the party. You know, it was Mary and Jesus plus 12. And that's a lot to expect. Perhaps Mary was going, you know, if you hadn't brought all 12, maybe there'd be some more wine. But we're going to have this celebration because those of us, even in our modern context, know that that celebration that happens after the ceremony is our first opportunity to bless with our joy and our presence the new couple. We look forward to that. We go with the intention of offering our congratulations and giving them our hopes and our dreams, our blessings, that this will be but the beginning of the next glorious phase of their relationship together, one that will carry them through hardships, one that will carry them through to the ends of their lives and be filled with incredible moments of joy and blessing. And so the custom in Jesus' day was that you had a huge celebration because every person was a blessing to you. And every person's presence and their joy and their celebration was setting the tone for your marriage and your life. And so when the wine ran out, Mary was like, it can't be done. There is still so much celebration to be done. And so she expects Jesus to help her ensure that this new couple would be doubly blessed, or in this case, 150th blessed. And so that's what Jesus does. By her opening the opportunity, by her rather insistence, he does this, and he blesses. And it becomes the moment when some of the first disciples truly start to get it and believe that he is truly something special. Some of them won't fully understand this until the moment of ascension after the entire story is done. But it marks the beginning of an incredible earthly ministry. And this is only but the first of the miracles that Jesus will perform. But the gospel account of John is helping us to see that she was there and inspiring and instigating the first miracle and seeing her inspired and instigated this final act of him upon the cross. He looks down and he sees her and he knows what happens to widows. He knows what happens to those that lose the one that is their grounding. He knows what people feel when their loved ones die and he doesn't want to leave her abandoned. And so he looks down upon her and he sees the faithful presence of this beloved disciple who has earned that title through three years of all kinds of trial and tribulation, bizarre experiences and incredible blessing. This disciple has been there with Jesus for three incredible years. And he entrusts his mother to him. And not just as power of attorney, not just as a caregiver. He declares on the cross that this beloved disciple is now her son. And for most of us, that would sound like a warm and fuzzy thing. But that also means that the disciple now has incredible legal and moral responsibility. 
And many of us, when confronted by some kind of incredible legal or moral responsibility, would like time to think about it, right? To at least plan, prepare, perhaps refuse. But here, the scripture is very clear to us that immediately, immediately, he took her into his home and he cared for her. From that moment, having received the invitation the movement and the opportunity to respond to what God is asking in Jesus Christ, the beloved disciple decides right now to take her into his home, into his heart, into his life for as long as she will live. It's an incredible commitment. All that he would have been expected to do for his parent if he had been the eldest, he is now expected to do for her. And maybe this is his only opportunity. What if he's not the eldest in his family? What if this is his only chance to really be the firstborn child for a mother? And he takes her into his home and he has to care for her all of her days. Because Mary is not done either. Now, this is the point where in Christianity we start to diverge a little bit. So in our Catholic roots, our Catholic siblings in faith, they would be focusing mostly on Mary. She is truly beloved and an incredible expression of faith and devotion in the Roman Catholic faith. She is known as the mother of God. She is the mother of the church. She is the new Eve. There is a lot to be ascribed to Mary there. And then as Protestants, perhaps because we are a kind of a reactionary people, we tend to kind of look away from Mary, often to our own detriment, and we embrace the perspective of the beloved disciple, this beloved disciple who is modeling discipleship, who is modeling the new church, a new way of understanding and being in the world because of the impact the relationship of Jesus Christ has had upon him. Well, I was wrestling this past few weeks with all kinds of concordance and commentary, both from the Roman Catholic tradition and the Protestant tradition. And what really stood out for me is that perhaps it's not the person on either side, but the connection that Christ makes for them, the union that Christ provides. Because for most of us, if we had been somewhere and Jesus said to us, I want you to take this older adult and treat them as your parent until the day they die, a lot of us would say, you know, I, I need to go talk to my family about that and probably a financial advisor and I might want to get a little bit of legal help before accepting that responsibility. I mean, how many times has God asked us to do something and we've uh, put off an answer by going, you know, I'm still discerning, still thinking about it. You know, that's always a great thing to come back to the pastor with. I'm giving you a line here. I'm still discerning. And so what we end up finding out is that sometimes we use prayerful discernment as a barrier against truly stepping in and stepping up into what God is asking us to do. And what is God asking us to do? Why is this story here? Jesus is dying on the cross. Grace is coming into the world in a way that it never has before. Why is it worth throwing in these two verses? Because in those places where birth and death collide in our lives, miracles happen. If you've ever been there for the birth of a human being, you know that that is an incredible experience. 
And it doesn't even have to be your human being. If you've ever been there at the moment that a life ends, then you know that there is something that happens when a life ends here and is turned over to God. And in those moments, we have an opportunity to make connections. At my last church, there was a family that had experienced a tragic loss. A young woman in her late 20s, who was actually my very same age and carried my same first name, had died in the midst of an operation. And the only connection her family had to a church was that years ago, she had been in the preschool that was a part of my church. And so they called and asked if somebody could do the funeral. And guess which one of the clergy was told that they were going to do the funeral? And so without any background with this woman, I started to work with her family. And and when they arrived for the day of the funeral, almost everything had been done on the phone because they weren't actually present here where I was appointed at the time. When I finally met them, I was shocked to discover that her aunt was my science teacher from the seventh grade. And she was now standing in my narthex. Fortunately, I was a really good student in seventh grade. That could have been very awkward. And so we did the funeral, and then afterwards, the family felt that it had gone as well as it could for a tragic death. But I was shocked when, less than six months later, I heard from the family again, because this time, Grandma had passed away. And they could think of no one else that they wanted to help them again mourn and celebrate their life than the person that they had made a connection with over this last death. And so once more... They came to my church, and I officiated this time for a beloved matriarch. And I remember saying to them, you know, we have to stop meeting like this. We need to find ways to meet that don't involve just death and mourning. And so that was a moment where I actually reforged a connection with my former science teacher, but also with some of the family that are my age, and kept that connection even now. Because when we have those moments where we could be entirely consumed by our own celebration at a birth, our mourning at a death, we are also given an opportunity to allow God to let something happen, something powerful and profound. Imagine, if you will, that that's why the church used to host receptions after services of death and resurrection. That in those moments afterwards when we would gather around for food, there would also be fellowship. And not fellowship as in laughing and jubilation, but instead a fellowship that allows people to come together and discover the stories and the experiences that connected them to the deceased. Where they learned that even though that person may be physically gone, there are others that treasure them just as much, that were impacted and moved by that life no matter how brief or long the connection was. And that's why the church fostered then and continues now to have receptions so that people can discover those gifts. But we're not relegated just to that for death or for a birth. Now, many of you might be familiar with the practice of a child being born, especially those most beloved of children known as grandchildren and showing everybody in the world this new beloved child and how beautiful that gift is and your face lights up and their face lights up because they are in love for you. But it's not just for birth and for death. 
we have been given power by the Holy Spirit. And that power should manifest itself in courage. The fact that we can make connections here and now. We are a people who have been impressed upon and indelibly changed by the encounter that we have had with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It has changed us. It is changing us right now. We are being sanctified by our faith. And to be made holy means that we want to share that. How many times have you eaten at a restaurant and gone back and told your friends, you've got to eat here, it's fabulous, and I highly recommend the steak? How many times have you watched a movie or listened to a musical artist and felt like you had to share it, it touched you, it moved you, you enjoyed it so much, you just had to tell so that those that you love and those that you enjoy can find that same joy? We do it with places, we do it with things. Why don't we do it with people? Why don't we say, you know, there is this incredible person. She greets at my church, and she is so vivacious, and she is so welcoming and joyful. She wants to get to know you, and man, she can pick up names like that. She is absolutely wonderful. You need to come and meet her. She means so much to me. I, I need to show you who she is. Or how about the man that serves with us at Grace Grocery, our food mission, where we allow people to come in and try to preserve their dignity so that they can get the food that they need. And there's a gentleman there who time and time again, whenever it is apparent that somebody needs help at home, he goes and he fixes floors and he uses his carpentry skills to help them. And that's just so inspiring because most of us would never set foot into somebody's house that we didn't know and then risk a lawsuit by helping them, but he does. Or what about that child in worship, the one that is just so engaged with Jesus that it's like faith just shines in her faith, and you just want to show people this child. You want to introduce them to her and her to them. Now, for those of us of the world, right, we think to ourselves, you know, not everybody wants an over-the-top vivacious person. Not everybody's into that. And that could go kind of wrong with a, with a greeter. You know, and, and not everybody feels comfortable with somebody that is, you know, willing to ask personal questions and then go to somebody's house. Maybe that's just not their thing. And um, shockingly, children are not everybody's thing. And so we might think to ourselves, no, 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 no. You know, we'll just, we'll just not do that. But Jesus looked down and saw two people that mattered to him so much. They had been with him for the, some of the hardest moments in his life. And they were going to be his legacy. They were going to carry on the faith. And he didn't want them to do that alone. He wanted them to experience the connection that he had with each one together. And he open space for that. He used words to invite it, or as only Jesus could do, command it. And then he set that example for us. And it takes courage to step into that. It takes courage to say to someone, you know, I know that you're, you know, you're not an extrovert. I know, you know that people can be over the top, but I just wish you could meet her. You know, and I, I know that you know, you're, you're a very private person and going into somebody else's space is very uncomfortable for you. But you've got to see what God does through this man. 
You need to see how people are so authentic and vulnerable with him because he's willing to take all that he has and all that he is and help. And I know how you feel about kids. But really, you've got to see this girl because she's not always going to be a child. One day she's going to grow up and she is going to be an amazing adult. And she is going to be one of those people that changes other people. She's going to change the world. And wouldn't you have wanted to be one of those people that was there when Mother Teresa was a little girl? Wouldn't you want to have been one of the people that was there to see the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King as he was singing in his church? Wouldn't you want to have been one of the people that was there to witness some of the great justice warriors, faithful disciples, and incredible names in history when you could have been there from the beginning? Those are opportunities that we extend because God has extended God's self to us. Jesus doesn't always give us a story so that we can try to figure out who we are. Jesus gave us a relationship that day so we could figure out who we are called to be. We are called to be those people, to be the ones that are open to relationships with people we wouldn't choose. People that don't exactly float our boat or that don't check off all of our boxes. We are called to be a people that say, you know, there's something here. You've got to meet this person. There's something here. I can't quite put my finger on it, but let me tell you, you're going to be glad that you did. I'm glad that I did. That's who we're called to be for Jesus. Christians in this day and age are afraid to be evangelists. We're afraid to tell people about our relationship with Jesus Christ. We're afraid to tell people how we feel about people within our family of faith. Where It's scary. And when people worry about saying the wrong thing, you know what the wrong thing said is? The one that goes unsaid. That's the wrong thing. Instead, it's putting ourselves out there and being willing to say, you know, maybe it's not for you, but I, I really appreciate you. I love you and I respect you. And this means so much to me. I, if this could bless you, I just want you to see. I want you to have the chance to experience it. And so we offer these things. We offer ourselves in the invitation to experience Jesus Christ. So that's why Jesus has this story in there. Because he cared about his mother. And he cared about his beloved disciple. But he cares about you too. And he cares about those of us that don't realize that he cares for us. And that maybe through our relationships, just maybe, our relationships will be the conduit through which people figure out that he cares about them too. And that all of that grace, all of that suffering and that struggling, all of those years of ministry, all of all that he is, was given for us. It was given for those of us that are here and those of us that are not. But relationship is how people are going to find out. Trust me, if you could buy a billboard, we would have done that already. It's about the relationship. If simply seeing something high above the ground level was enough, then everybody who saw that cross would have become a Christian. But the ones who became Christians were those that encountered Jesus Christ. 
And the ones that became Christians after he ascended into heaven are those that encountered those that encountered Jesus Christ. And that's who we are. We are those that have experienced the resurrected Christ. And we know that he lives. He lives so that we can live. He lives so that we can love. He lives and has invited us through the miraculous resurrection on that first Easter to live a life that will be eternal. Eternally in right relationship. Because the description of what the kingdom to come is, that it comes to us from the book of Revelation, is very clear. It is a place where relationship no longer sins. It is a place where there is no more crying or mourning or sickness or death. It is a place where we are free to love forever. It is unending relationship with our God and with God's children. And our duty here and now and in the days ahead is to make sure that we are using that gift of relationship to give people a glimpse, a taste, an opportunity to hear for themselves. Because there are things that are so beautiful about another person that there are no words, there is no painting, no portrait, there is no video, there is nothing that could possibly capture how beautiful that person is. The only thing that captures it is the heart. And so we share that with another. So the next time you feel yourself pulling away from an opportunity to be in relationship, the next time you think to yourself, this is going to get really awkward, just know that God is with you, within you, and for you. And that no matter how embarrassed you think you may get, God is willing to use you to become the very next vessel that shares the grace of Jesus Christ. And take the courage to be who God has redeemed you to be. A gift, a relationship, a mother, a child, a disciple, a blessing. May it be so. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Thank you again for joining us for this week's podcast. We hope you found the message meaningful and we invite you to join us in person as we gather for worship at Crozet United Methodist Church every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org to learn about ways you can connect with God and your neighbors through the ministries of Crozet UMC. Have a great week.